0: Time and Luke kind of writes this travel narrative of it's a it's like a travel journal of where Jesus is and where he's going and where he's been. And for the last 10 chapters, Jesus has had resolutely turned his face towards one place, towards one moment in time. Uh, if you look in uh, chapter 9, in verse 51, it says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He, he turned his face, he sternly turned towards Jerusalem. And for 10 chapters, we've been in this journey from him turning his face to Jerusalem to chapter 19, verse 28, which says, After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. It's this moment uh, like a, a, a Frodo and Sam crossing over into Mordor. It's the moment when uh, Clint Eastwood rolls into town in every Western that's ever happened. When, when Clint Eastwood gets to town, you know it's about to go down, right? Like, like you know uh, uh, there's going to be this final kind of epic showdown. And that's exactly what happens. If you, uh, if you look in chapter 19, in just a few verses, and I'm just going to kind of move through, through Scripture today. There, there's a lot there, and I'm not going to read it all. But Jesus turns towards Jerusalem, and right in chapter 19, we have a story of a triumphal entry. You guys heard this story before? Jesus comes over from the the villages just outside of Jerusalem, the villages of Bethany and Bethpage. And he comes over this mount and there's this scene of triumphal entry. It's a scene uh, uh, that you would think of, um, how many of you uh, have seen uh, like Queen Elizabeth? I know we don't have kings and queens over here, uh, but you you guys know Queen Elizabeth? You know, have any of you been watching The Crown on Netflix Have you guys seen this show? All right, so it's not quite Downton Abbey, but it's still pretty good. So, uh, you know, the queen in England, you know, the queen, you know, you guys know who I'm talking about? She's 90, and she has been queen since 1957. That's pretty impressive, right? So when the queen goes out into town, or maybe she makes a a journey from Buckingham Palace to, I don't know, Downton Abbey, or I don't know where, where, you know, Westminster Abbey, I guess. Uh, have you seen what goes with her? It's a massive parade, right? Like it's, there's soldiers in front, and, and I always think about the like, royal weddings. They've got that one special carriage that's gilded, right? Like, and you look at it, and you know it's like, a, it's like a presidential limousine. You know when you look at that, like this is royalty. Royalty is on the way. And in uh, Luke chapter 19, Luke tells us that the people, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, the people line up on the street to see the coming of the king. And this is really a fascinating scene because uh, we'll have Palm Sunday here in a couple of weeks and we're kind of winding down to, towards Easter is where everything happens. But the people line the streets and they're holding what? Palm branches, that's right. Uh, they would call them Hosannas and they would cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They, the people would line the street expecting to see the queen or the king. And it's interesting. So you, you kind of almost get this sense in scripture that um, if you've ever been to a parade, you know, you kind of got to get there early and you kind of jockey for position. You don't want somebody like me standing right in front of you on the parade route. You know, like, that's no good. You don't get to see nothing. You know, and so you get this sense that like a, a wave moves through the crowd of people around and in Jerusalem. There's a, a word comes out that the king is coming. And so people crowd the streets and they grab their palm branches and they line up and they start singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They take their garments and they throw them down for the king to come and something incredible happens. They expected a gilded chariot to roll down the road. But who shows up? Jesus. Riding a what? Womp, womp, womp. You know, like, this is the ultimate, like, you know, there's all this excitement and anticipation for the king. Imagine Queen Elizabeth, 90-year-old Queen Elizabeth, comes riding to Westminster Abbey on a donkey. What would you think? Yeah, would you be disappointed? you you be like, what is going on? What is this? It, it's this amazing scene where Jesus shows up at, at Jerusalem, this place he's been thinking about and heading to. It's the place where the showdown is going to happen, and he doesn't come in on a white horse or a... A pale horse, you guys seen Pale Rider. I love that. I love that movie. Uh, he shows up on a donkey. Jesus does this incredibly unexpected thing. But then he, he does another thing. So Jesus is leaving the villages of Bethany and Bethpage, and he comes over this hill that's just outside of Jerusalem. Any of you guys ever been there? You've been to Jerusalem? I haven't either, but I'm going to tell you what it's like. So just outside the city, there's this hill. It's a mount, and olive trees grow on it. We call it the Mount of Olives. That's right. So Jesus comes up over this hill, and the hill sits just outside of Jerusalem, and it overlooks the whole city, and the view would have looked something like this. Go ahead. This is a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Are you with me? So Jesus, (laughs) the unexpected king, shows up, not in a gilded chariot, but on a donkey. And as he rides into the city, remember the streets are packed with people anticipating the coming of the king. Jesus does something even more unexpected. He's weeping. Okay, nobody expected that. not only is he not on a war horse there's this guy on a donkey, and he's weeping you guys you you guys know the ugly cry the late- ladies y'all know the ugly cry like there's 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 the funeral cry and then there's the ugly cry uh the you guys, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Like the ugly cry is you start making sounds like a dying animal. Like there is like there's this place of grief and mourning that we go to sometimes when something like so epically tragic happens and it just hits us and it's our our it's the sound of your insides melting out, right? And it's not it, it, it's it's not well contained. It's not like a cry that's kind of <laughs> under control. No, it, it makes these sounds that people look up and draw attention. And I think that's exactly what's happening in scripture when Jesus starts riding into Jerusalem. Is that the picture you had? He's not showing up like, like, we, like we thought at all. He shows up weeping And mourning. And as you know, people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And here he is. Full ugly cry mode. How would you react? How would you respond? Go ahead and put that picture of uh, Jerusalem back up there. I want to keep coming back to this. For every, uh, I, I know it's hard for us to imagine. But in this time, for every Jew, you went to Jerusalem once a year. At least once a year for the feast of Passover. And if you want to learn more about that, just check out Exodus. You can learn more. But every year you would show up at Jerusalem for, uh, for good Jewish, faithful, godly Jewish men and women. Jerusalem was the key to your whole faith. Everything about your people's identity and faith and future rested in Jerusalem. Your faith had a a physical address, it had a physical location, and it was Jerusalem. And every year you had to go to Jerusalem. And, And not just to Jerusalem, but you had to go to what in Jerusalem? The temple. The temple is the center of your faith. You would take a lamb, you would take an offering, and you would make a sacrifice every single year at the temple for all of your sins. Right? Are you with me? In the center of Jerusalem stood the temple, the symbol of future and hope. It was the symbol of all of your faith. The temple... During this time, as Jesus rides over that hill, is the second temple. It's not the one built by Solomon, but it's the temple built by Herod. So, so Herod is this incredible builder in the uh, in the first century. Uh, he's also like super vindictive and scary, and like genocide of babies and all that whole nine yards too. But he builds these incredible structures. And in the time of Jesus' day, he built a temple in Jerusalem. But it wasn't a temple to God. People called it Herod's Temple. And to this point in history, it is the most impressive building in the entire world. So if you go back in the Old Testament and you read about Solomon's Temple, Herod's Temple is about four times as big. Right? So you remember the wealth Solomon had? Herod said, hey, I'm way better than Solomon. Look what I can do. Herod actually levels a mountaintop. So he cuts the top off of a mountain to make a platform to build his temple on. And the platform after Herod cuts the top off the mountain is about 35 acres. That's how big it is. It took 10,000 Skilled laborers almost a hundred years to build this temple. Imagine ten thousand and it took almost a hundred years to build this temple it has so much gold and so much marble on it the the first century jewish historian josephus said when you looked at the temple from the mount of olives or from anywhere else when you looked at the temple it looked like you were looking at a snow covered mountain that's how big and impressive it was And for every Jew, it was the center of their faith. For every Jew, the temple is where heaven and earth meet. You've seen that, that painting in the Sistine Chapel? Well, it's like this. There's a finger of God going this way, and there's a finger of man coming this way. You know what I'm talking about? For every Jew, the temple was that moment. That place where all of God met all of humanity. It was the place where all of their hopes and dreams and future rested. And every Jew makes a pilgrim every year to have sins forgiven through the sacrificial system. There was no greater symbol of their faith than the temple in Jerusalem. I I don't know what to compare it to. Uh, Maybe a Statue of Liberty for us or a Washington monument. It was the central icon of every Jewish hope and dream. And it's a familiar place for Jesus. He's presented at the temple when he's eight days old. If you guys look all the way back in Luke, Uh, there's a prophecy there by a guy named Simeon, and there's also a prophecy about Anna in the temple that says, hey, one day this guy's going to really disrupt things. Jesus is left at the temple when he's 12 years old, right? Remember this? His parents go to Jerusalem. They go to the temple. Why are they there? Once a year, everybody's got to go. You have to go to the sacrificial system. You have to go to Passover. This is where your sins are forgiven. This is where you go to meet God. And Jesus' parents neglectfully leave Jesus. And where do they find him? In the temple. And what's he say? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? It's a familiar place for Jesus. He's been there many times. And as he comes over the hill... Riding on a donkey with the ugly cry. Why is he crying? What do you think? Why the ugly cry? See this awesome snow covered mountain, the symbol of heaven and earth meeting, the central place of all your faith. Look what it says in Luke 19. In verse 41 through 44, I think. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to ugly cry. That's the official Hebrew translation. It says in verse 42, says, how I wish today, crying. So he's imagine, he's in that view, Mount of Olives, looking out over the city, looking over the temple. He says, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in uh, from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for what? Elevation. Later, Jesus will be in the temple with his disciples, and they're going to marvel at, man, this place is amazing. It's not even complete yet when they're there. It's 40 years from being complete. And they're looking at the artistry and the gold and the inlay and the carving, and Jesus' disciples are going, wow, this is such an awesome place. This is an amazing example of our faith and what God is doing and heaven and earth meeting, and Jesus tells them, no, not one stone of this place will be left on another. Jesus, in uh, Luke 19, he gives this vision of, man, you, you guys had it. You had the way of peace, but now you've missed it. You missed your opportunity for salvation. And what's going to happen? So imagine, all right, so the temple takes almost 100 years to be built. And seven years after it's completed in AD 70... It is completely destroyed. The Jews revolt against the Romans. You know, there's all that tension between Jews and Romans this whole time. And the Jews are going to revolt, revolt against Rome. And Rome, a Roman uh, uh, general named Titus, is going to surround Jerusalem. And he's going to starve the people, the Jews that are there to death. That's what happens. Josephus actually writes, records the history. It It is the most gruesome and horrible story you could ever imagine. It tells of mothers going into their children's throats and pulling food out because they're so hungry. The Jews that try to escape the city are immediately captured by the Romans who dissect them one at a time because they think they've swallowed gold and are trying to smuggle it out. In one scene, 2,000 Jews are cut open to see if they're trying to smuggle any gold out. Eventually, Titus is going to march into the city, and he is going to level it. Literally, not a single stone Will be left standing. It is said that after Titus goes through and wipes out Jerusalem and completely raises the temple of God to the ground, it says that you could drag a plow through the center of Jerusalem and never hit a stone. And Jesus tells the Jews, looking at this snow covered mountaintop, He says, This is what's coming. this is what's coming all of your hopes and dreams your identity your your the center of your faith is all of this is going to be raised to the ground it, it would be like a uh, it would be like a foreign power coming into the US and completely demolishing Washington DC and leveling it that's what it would feel like Not a single stone is left standing. And Jesus weeps for the people. Then he surprises the crowd again as he enters into Jerusalem. He goes immediately to the temple, a place he's been a bunch of times. And what's he do once he gets there? He's already ridden on a donkey. He comes in ugly crying. He goes straight to the temple, and what's he do? He fashions a cord of ropes, and he drives out the money changers and animal changers. So here's how this would have worked. So because the temple is a holy place of God, you couldn't uh, pay your temple taxes, which you had to do every year also, with Roman currency. You know, uh, uh, Jesus will be tested uh, about coins and Giving to Caesar what's Caesar's and giving to God what's God's and what belongs to him. So you can't pay your taxes uh, to the temple with Roman currency. So you have to exchange money and get, so you have to take your Roman currency and get a temp, official temple shekels. And that's how you do. And the fact that you wait and do it right on, in the booths outside of the temple means that the people in the booths get to charge whatever kind of exchange rate they want right? And if you have an animal for sacrifice, your your animal to uh, forgive all of your sins has to be a perfect animal without blemish or without anything. And so, you have to bring your animal and have the priest inspect it to make sure it's without blemish. And of course, the priests are going to find what on your animals? They're going to find blemishes. And so, Conveniently, though, they'll sell you a blemish-free animal for this much more. See how this works? And you take your blemish-free animal into the temple. You make your sacrifice, and you come back out, and you see that same priest selling your what to somebody else. Now, all those booths—the animal exchange booths and the money exchange booths—do you know who owns them? All those booths are owned by the head of the temple. They have His name written across the top of them. And Jesus loses it. And he drives them out, and then he's not, he's not a very good like uh, revolutionary, because it seems like after you do something so dramatic, you would run away. But what does he do? He stays. And he goes and he sits in the temple and it says again and again and again that you can find him sitting in the temple teaching every single day. There is a boldness about Jesus. But there is an audacious claim about him coming into Jerusalem about a system and about a faith and about a way of things happening that is about to be changed. Today, if you go into Jerusalem, um, surprise, there is no temple. Um, I wish I could have seen it. Even the models and pictures I've seen don't, don't do it justice. The temple is destroyed in AD 70 by Titus, as well as all of Jerusalem. And in, today, if you go to Jerusalem, that gold-domed building you see there, is, uh, uh, it's actually standing where the temple would have stood, and it's called the, the shrine. Uh, it, it's a shrine, it's an Islamic shrine called the Dome of the Rock. So in the place where the temple stood now stands an Islamic shrine, and it's been there for over a thousand years. But Christians should not be offended because our place of worship isn't a location. Do you get that? Our place of worship doesn't have an address. There's How many of you have made a pilgrimage before? Why not? Because our place of worship is is a person when jesus rides into jerusalem that day he gives them a heads up that everything is about to change in matthew chapter 12 verse 6 jesus says there is one here who is greater than the temple in john chapter 4 verse 21 when jesus talks to the samaritan woman at the well the samaritan woman says well where should we worship Uh, and Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither will you worship on this mountain and neither will you worship in Jerusalem, but a time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If you fast forward all the way to the end, to the book of Revelation, I read Revelation with my nine-year-old this this past week. (laughs) That was fun. Um, Interesting. Lots of questions. But in Revelation it says, there is no temple in the city, for the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Are you getting this? The function of the temple is now in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the high priest. He's the once and for all sacrifice. And he is The temple, Jesus himself completes the work of the temple. He is now the source of every hope and dream. He is the center of our faith. And he calls us to make a shift from geography to spirit. And now the pilgrimage that we make as men and women of God is a pilgrimage of heart. And those of you who have come to faith in life know that it is a heart journey, a spirit journey. Have some of you seen it? You move to this new place of accepting grace and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Some of you have experienced it for yourself. This past weekend, I, I did, a, did a wedding for some friends. Uh, and it was a it was a different kind of wedding service. I love doing weddings. It's it's so fun and interesting and frankly I get the best seat in the house. I think I've told you that. So like they're right here and I'm right here. I feel a little a little intrusive almost. But then my job is to to see what happens between these two figures. This awesome work of the spirit of God happening right here. It, it happens right in front of my face and this this last wedding I did, it was um, it was the most worshipful wedding service I've ever been to in my life. We literally just stopped the service at about three or four different points and sang a worship song. I thought, whoa, that's cool. And in the middle of the service, this couple requested that I we, we just kind of take all the mics off. We took all the microphones off. And the couple just asked for a, a few brief moments of communion together. And as this, this couple got together and they, we prayed, and it, it was kind of a weird kind of, hey, excuse us from this service. We want to enter into a time of communion with God together. And as this couple took communion together, the, 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 the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, they all came and laid hands on them. And I'd never seen that before. I, I mean, I thought, man. This is awesome. They read in this worship service, um, they gave me a passage of scripture that they that they kind of wanted the, the service to kind of be built around. And, you know, I was expecting, you know, Ephesians 5 with, you know, love and relationships between husbands and wives or 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the great love chapter of the Bible. You know what they gave me? They gave me Isaiah 61. No one pick. I, get, I bet right now, what's Isaiah 61 say? That's what I said. I don't know. Like Isaiah 61, nobody picks Isaiah 61 for, for, for anything, but they don't pick it for their wedding either. It's this incredible passage. In fact, Jesus quotes it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news, to release captives, to care for the poor, it talks about rebuilding and restoring, repairing. And in all of these elements of, of this couple's service, like, like I, I sensed it as, as much as anyone. Like what you could tell right from the start is that, that, that Jesus wasn't just going to be a part of their relationship or their marriage, but Jesus was at the very center in, in their wedding ceremony, you could not deny, at the center of their marriage, wasn't a temple, but a person. The person of Jesus Christ. At the very core. Jesus will go on to say, in verse 17 of chapter 20, in just a few verses, donkey riding ugly crying driving people out of the temple jesus is going to say to the jews the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone he comes in to replace all of that All of the system of sacrifice, all of the the priestly system and the codes of the law, all of this system of worship that's built around a specific location, Jesus now becomes the centerpiece of everything. He says, I am the cornerstone. So, as Easter approaches for us, just a few weeks away, right? Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and maybe the question for you is, how is he entering into your life? Maybe the question is, where is your place of worship? Is it this building? Is it some career or or career path or, or financial goal? Where is your place of worship? What is your life built on? What's at the very center? What's at the core? In your relationship with your kids, what's at the center? Are you teaching them to have their lives built on the person of Jesus Christ? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. In just a moment, I'm going to dismiss you. I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'm going to dismiss you to your own temple pilgrimage. No longer do we have to travel to Jerusalem to have our sins forgiven. No longer do we have to go to a specific place and perform a specific routine to receive what God has for us. All that God has. All of his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his encouragement, all the fulfillment and life. That God has, is available to you today, now, here, in this place, in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And we as a church celebrate that moment and remember that moment by entering into the temple of Jesus Christ. By taking his body and his blood into ourselves. And so in just a moment, we have tables set up around the room. We invite you to a time of holy communion with Jesus Christ to remember his death, his burial, his resurrection, to remember, to embody everything that he represents, everything that he promises. And as you do so, may your lives find its cornerstone again. Are you with me? May your life find its center. Maybe you've been a little bit off center. It happens, doesn't it? In these moments, may you receive everything that Christ offers. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your son. We repent as a church, Father God, because times we've, we've tried to build our, our lives around other things. We've focused on other things. We've, we've built towers in our name. We've built on our own pride and our selfishness. We've built in pursuit of different dreams. And Father God, I ask if... Um, if our construction has been based on or built on, if our foundation is anything other than on you, then Father God, go ahead like that temple did in AD 70. Let it be torn down. Let it be collapsed. And let our lives come and find their meaning and core and their purpose and their center in you again. Father God. Let us embrace all that you have to offer in your son, Jesus Christ. Let us build our lives on you. We love you. Be with us now as we enter into this time of communion and remember your son. And it's in his name that everyone together says, amen. I invite you to stand and enjoy a time of communion together.